This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. James Phelps, welcome to Better Reading. G'day, how are you? I'm really good. So you're, you've written this book called Australian Heist. You're an award-winning senior reporter for the Daily Telegraph. I don't know why my girls wrote in senior. That wasn't necessary, was it? Oh, I think it's a bit of a privilege. You get. It means your role, uh, but it also means that you've um, done something apparently. I used to be called uh, a junior reporter. I didn't like that very much. So. Oh, either, because you don't look quite that senior to me. Oh, I'm getting there. I'm oh, you're getting, getting there. there. Yeah. Okay. So you work for the Daily Telegraph and the Sunday Telegraph in Sydney. Um, and you're Australia's number one best-selling true crime writer. Yeah, oh my God. that's pretty cool, isn't it? It is pretty cool. For someone that's cool. written about sport their whole <laughs> life, um, yeah, I'll take that. Um, sport. Um, okay, well, we'll get on to sport. Um, so this, um, following the best-selling book, your book, Dick Johnson, an autobiography of a true blue Aussie sporting legend, James returned to his roots to delve into the criminal underworld with a series of crime books, Australia's hardest prison inside the walls of Long Bay Jail. I mean, wow. Um, so obviously you don't have a lot of spare time. Um, no, I, I actually think I, I've got too much time at times. Whenever I sit down to watch TV or something, I feel I should be doing something a little bit more productive. Uh, so you're one of those, one of those hyperactive people. I must be. You must be. Australia's most murderous prison. Oh, we've got that. Australia's toughest prison. Oh, so there are two books on prisons, on um, inmates, and uh, and now you're here to talk about Australian heists. So I guess you were saying before we started this podcast that you also write um, your report on sport. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. My bread and butter is rugby league and V8 supercars, which I've been covering since I was a, a young pup. So. so is there a correlation between true crime, football? <laughs> uh, I, I think there is actually. I, I've joked to a few people that the Bush Rangers were the rugby league players of their day. They got up to all sorts of strife like our NRL players do and, um, you know, they were also quite famous and, you know, you'd get their autograph, I guess, back then just like you would a footy player. But, um, yeah, they're bad boys, a lot of our sports people, and that's what attracts us to them. You know, they... They go out, especially rugby league players, put their bodies on the line. They're in all sorts of collisions, very violent. So, yeah, I think there certainly is a little bit of a comparison Isn't that interesting? There. Because I wouldn't have made that um, comparison. But, yeah, you're right, actually. But a few of them have spent time in jail too. So uh, Football, eh? Yeah, there's quite a, there's a chapter on a right? rugby league player in one of my prison books that I went and visited in Cessnock High Maximum Security. Wow. Off the rails. So, yeah, he... Yeah. Um, he was done for, for murdering a man with a, a one-punch attack. Wow, that's big time. Yeah, okay. So Australian Heist, um, June 1862, a gang of bush rangers held up a gold escort uh, just outside of Forbes, New South Wales. They escaped with a pile of cash and 77 kilograms of gold. So that's worth about $10 million today. It remains the largest gold robbery in Australian history. Wow. 
Yeah, it was massive. And so I mean, tell me more about this. Well, first of all, let's just talk about the amount. I guess um, I actually went to the gym and grabbed 80 kilos worth of weights and um, tried to pick them up. And it's a staggering, you know, weight. And for them to actually rob on horseback, you got to remember they weren't loading it mm. up into an armored van or. Where I mean, did they get it? Where did they rob it from? The it bank. Was, no, no, it was from a wagon. So um, the the gold was en route from um, the, the the mine near Forbes and travelling all the way down to Sydney. So, so they knew it was there, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it was actually planned and plotted to, to quite a big detail. But what would happen back then is um, all the gold that got dug up in these regional mines would be would be carried by a wagon and horse to, to Sydney. So every week um, in the boom days of, of these mines, there was um, a weekly escort which would take the gold down to the banks in Sydney. And the newspapers at the time would actually, the day after the, the, the delivery, write how much gold was on board. Yeah, so right. the bush so rangers knew. would get the paper, sit there and say, look, it's 40 kilos of gold or 30 kilos of gold. So yeah, let's, yeah. let's watch Or 77 them. kilos. Yeah, well, they didn't know it was that much and that's why this turned into quite an incredible tale because it was um, such a huge amount. And when they grabbed hold of it, they realised that, hey, uh, we can no longer live normal lives, we're going to have the whole British Empire coming after us and they were the most wanted men in the British Empire, not just in New South Wales or Sydney. So is 77 kilograms or 40 kilograms or even 30 kilograms of gold, I mean, how easy is that to sell off? Like, I mean, what are you going to do with it? Particularly difficult. I mean, um, that, yeah. they weren't bargaining to have this much gold. So, yeah, it's like fencing things today. And I mean, criminals have that problem today. When they steal money, they have to launder their money and, and work out how to do it. And it was the same thing for these guys. So, But how do you launder gold? Well, I think originally they were considering that they'd just be able to buy property with it or exchange it for cash. Um, but then all of a sudden when this manhunt was on and they became the most wanted men, anyone that was trading in their gold was being examined to see who yeah. they were and where they got their gold Is it from. trademarked or is it... No, it was way? actually, it was in raw form. So this was oh, a mixture wow. of nuggets, gold shavings from pans, right. um, all different shapes and sizes. And, um, yeah, one of them got caught actually travelling down to Victoria where he thought he could fence it off down there. So he was going to go and pose as a miner down at some of the Victorian gold fields and trade it in. But uh, he pretend got, he found it himself. Yeah, yeah, an officer pulled him over along that journey to Victoria and told him to empty his pockets and... There were all these nuggets of gold, which she obviously wow. couldn't explain where they'd come from. Yeah, extraordinary story. So tell me, um, James, what, where did I, I want to know about you and and how you firstly became a journalist, but also the interest in these subjects because you are quite prolific. You're a prolific writer. So where did you grow up? How did you come to writing? Well, I grew up in um, three different places. I guess I was born in Greenacre in, um, I guess, southwestern Sydney. And yeah. when I was four, my dad got a position as a principal. He was a deputy at that point, but it was mm. in a disadvantaged school in the middle of nowhere. It was a, a Aboriginal community in a, an asbestos mining town called Bar Eugle, which right. is near... I've never heard of it. Yeah, it's near Grafton on the, the mid-north coast of New South wow. Wales. But yeah. it's a very famous community in a sense because, um, you know, it was this uh, sort of old school Aboriginal you know, Indigenous community and I think it was in the 60s, um, James Hardy discovered oh, yeah. asbestos. Yeah. So they created these mines and, yeah, they, there were some pretty horrific stories coming out of there about what happened to the people of that Terrible. community. But, yeah, I was um, one of three non-Indigenous kids so in no, my your, primary school. So none of your family were affected by asbestos? No, no, the asbestos mine had been shut down when we got there but the community right. was obviously still quite large and... yeah. 
Yeah, I remember um, yeah, it was three of us that were the non-Indigenous in the whole school and I was the principal's son as well. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you copped it? Oh, you know, I didn't know I was copying it but apparently <laughs> I did so it toughened me a lot, yeah. up a lot and when I got back to, to Greenacre. Um, yeah, you were I, still copying it. Well, I, I, I <laughs> Because Greenacre's not, it wouldn't have been easy I back was a pretty then. good footy player because I'd been playing football with all these, um, you know, older Aboriginal kids who were absolutely freakish in their skill. I never wore shoes or anything Why like that. Why is that? Is it just the strength, the body strength? No, I just think... Um, I don't know, it's genetics, I think, and it's, it's it speed, it's skill. It's, yeah, it's everything, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, they're just um, freakish athletes. and Right. Yeah. Um, so you had um, a kind of a solid background, I guess, in mm-hmm. terms of sport and looking after yourself, but where does the writing come in? Um, because that's not really um, uh, being a journalist and writing books is not really usually associated with the sports yeah, it, background. It, it's quite strange because I always wanted to be a rugby league player and I got to quite a high level and when I finished playing rugby league, by chance I became a rugby league journalist. I had a girlfriend at the time and her father worked at, at News Limited. So how do you become by chance a journalist? Well, I got a job in, a, in production at the Print Centre at Chalora. Her, her right. father worked there and he got me a job and yeah. after a little bit I got promoted into a a place in town which was next to the journalist. I've actually worked outside them. A big glass window was between yeah. us and yeah. I used to look at them all the time thinking, gee, I'd love to be a journalist. And, yeah. And had you thought about writing and did you have stories in your head? And... Yeah, I did. And um, eventually I went over and just started saying, can I contribute? Can I right. write for three? And I did that for yep. a couple of years before I got my start. But I'd always wanted to be a writer and I'd given it up on it quite young. So my mum, when I published my first book, pulled out all these books that I'd written when I was four, five, six, seven. So I used to write my own books. So you started young. And they're probably better than what I've done now, to be honest. (laughs) Quite good. But the passion for words and language Yeah, and and I did um, year school, I think year 10, we did work placement. I went and did it with a newspaper, which I'd forgotten about. I I didn't think I was good enough at English Mm -hmm. to become a writer. Yeah. And I kind of gave up on that dream. But by chance, it came full circle and I got the opportunity. And when people started reading my stuff, I... Decided I'd keep on writing. So yeah, there's an honesty about it, isn't there? The yeah. way you write. Yeah, it's just guttural. I hope so. Yeah, 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 yeah. it is. And so uh, your first job, so you're working for the Daily Telegraph. How long have you been there? I've been there since the year 2000. So it was my wow. Well, first real job. I worked in pubs, McDonald's, yes. Paperboy, yeah, all, like those, we all, did. Yeah, all those yeah. things beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. And so how did you come to write your first book? Which was your first book? Um, my first book actually hasn't been published yet, but I started reporting on motorsport and I got approached by someone and it was an Australian athlete that lives overseas, Chad Reed. He's a motocross rider. So, right. yeah, they approached me and I said, yeah, why not? And wrote yeah. the book and ended up being a little bit controversial for the athlete's wife. <laughs> Oh, right. So she sort of put a line through it and it, that's on hold. Right. But after that I was a little bit, I guess, dis, yeah, disinterested and a bit yeah. upset with it all. Yeah, because yeah. it's a big effort, isn't it? It was. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I wasn't really keen to do another one but after a while I thought, well, why not? And I approached Dick Johnson who I was writing about at the time and had a relationship with and asked him if he'd be interested and he was and that ended up going on to become a... A bestseller. So that mm. was. Um, so tell me about that. So it, so you wrote his autobiography. So mm-hmm. obviously um, you're ghosting him. Tell me about the challenges of writing, because you've got to get in somebody else's mind, don't you? Oh, absolutely. It's a completely different process to 
to writing something yourself. First of yes. all, it's in it's in their voice. It's in the first person. But more than anything, it, it it's I guess you need their approval for everything, and you need them to tell the story. So you you're That's totally right. reliant on them. Like you. How you, much time do you spend with them? Um, oh, hours and hours and days and weeks and mm. it's. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I wouldn't mm. be even be able to tell you. Like, um, mm. I'd have to go through the tapes. But, yeah, the frustrating thing is you might be ready to write in the writing mood. You might have the time off work ready to go, but you don't have the content from them and you can't raise them or, or get mm. hold of them. So... Mm. Makes it difficult. And do you think, I mean, obviously people, they they believed it, you know, they, they believed that he was writing and he was telling his story. I mean, you know, that you actually managed to get that voice yeah, right. Yeah, it, it just, was spot it on. It just happens. I'm not sure. Like it's the yeah. same with some other projects but, um, yeah, you, you're able to capture it and I guess when you spend that much time with them it, it just comes out but you don't really do it intentionally but no. after you read it back you know that you've got it. Yeah, okay. And then so what was your next book? Um, uh, after that it became a bestseller so the publisher was on to me. Instead yeah. of going to them, they were coming to me now and um, they asked me what's next, a book on Jamie Winkup who's another sportsman or maybe a rugby league player and I looked at the publisher and said uh, I couldn't ever write sport again. I said I'm not taking three months off my job as a sports reporter to write more sport. I'm in mm. danger of hating sport mm. um so she said that I could do anything I like and the week after that conversation I was at a party and uh there was a few prison guards around a campfire drinking beer and they were telling all these amazing prison tales and I you go to different parties than I do yeah well I'd never <laughs> never met anyone from the no. that, that side of yeah. the world and um I stood back and listened to all these stories as they were telling them and um I, kind of, I had the bullshit radar going thinking this can't be right but I approached one of them the next day and it turns out that they were the watered-down versions of what actually real really goes on. So yeah. there and then I decided I had, had my next book and went from there. Yeah. So tell me about that. Tell me about – I mean there's so much conversation always about the value of prisons. Do they work? Do they really rehabilitate people or do they not? What What were your feelings around it when you were researching? In, in terms of rehabilitation? Yeah, well, yeah, in terms of zero. them as an institution. No, there, there are places that we lock up these people we don't want in our society. That's to get them away from us. It's out of sight, out of mind. And for the criminals, it's um, just part of their life. It's They go into this life of crime knowing that at some point they could end up in jail and for them it's just part of their journey. Most of them go in there and use it to increase their networks and, you know, learn more criminal skills. It's probably like us going to university in a way. Mm-hmm. And do you think it, like the people that go to prison, that's culturally what they're used to? 
Oh, it is. For the, the hardcore habitual career criminals, like yes. a lot of them, their, their families have been involved in crime and been in and out of jails their whole life. And So how do the poor, the people like you and I, say, for instance, if we were to do something and end up in jail, what's the survival difference between those hardcore people and people like like us? Oh, it, it's your worst nightmare. They're, the the only way imagine. that you deal with it is um, you pay people for protection. Right. Or you put yourself into solitary confinement, or which is protection, which the government provides. And if you go into that, you're marked forever as a. It's called a dog. And what if you go into protection? If you go into protection, you're marked as a dog. And it, if you're ever seen by any of the other criminals, they're going to try right. and murder you. Okay. So whilst writing this book, did you ever fear for your own life? Did you? Yeah, yeah, I did. I actually had a very prominent. A murderer who is in for life put a put a hit out on me for something that I right. wrote. So about him. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And how did that feel? I didn't feel good, did it? No. <laughs> no, but how did you deal with that? I bought bought a lot of baseball bats. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Oh, you could maybe yeah. Um, th- I mean, seriously, that must be very worrying. Yeah, it was. But I mean, you've got to expect things like that when you go into a project and you are. You know, revealing things about these people that. And are... did you think? Do you think he was serious? Oh, absolutely! Yeah. Right. Yep. Wow. Yep. Um... So that would be my fear about writing about you know dealing with people like that is you actually get you're in their world like you get sucked into their world if you like. Mm, isn't yeah, it? and, and, and you become a part of a group that you might ne- necessarily want to be part of. You are, and it's always the things that you wouldn't expect that get you in trouble. So yeah. you can write some mm-hmm. of the you know, the hardest core, most disgusting things about these people, they don't bat an eyelid. Mm. And it's, but if you say it's they've something got big so ears, simple about what, what they, they ate that day at the yeah. canteen or... Yeah, yeah that they're the, sensitive towards. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, wow. Okay. But nothing, I mean, there's no fear in any of this because you, then you went on to write another one. Yeah, yep. I um, ended up writing four, four yeah. on the prison system. So. Um, and, and do you think that that those books were taken seriously in terms of people looking at prison systems and evaluating how we treat, you know, how we... I ended up in the uh, the Commissioner of Jail's office a few times, so I think they were taken quite seriously. Yeah, they were and, hearing you. Yeah, some of the stories have ended up in, in courts and been used by some of these criminals. But, yeah. for example, um, I revealed that uh, the guy from Hey Dad, Robert Hughes, the famous actor, he, he was getting faeces thrown at him and urine thrown at him. In, in Goulburn Jail. Um, so, yeah, that, that had some consequences and he actually used that to try and get his sentence reduced mm. about the harassment that, that he copped mm. while in there. Because I guess, the, the, you know, there's not a lot of se- segregation. You you kind of, you're all thrown in together. Is that right? Yeah, he he was in a pedophile wing but the, the actual reason why he was getting species thrown at him was because um, he was walking to other sections of the prison through you know, fencing that they couldn't right. get at him but they could throw their urine through the, the gaps in the fence and wow. and get him. Yeah. But, yeah, he wouldn't have lasted a second if he was in general population. He'd be he'd be dead by now. Mm, mm. Okay, so um, but as a reporter, do you report on crime? No, no, not anymore. Mm, I, I do bits and pieces but yeah. I did, as part of my cadetship, I did overnight police rounds for a year. Yeah. So we'd sit in the car... Um, at midnight, 2am at Auburn with police scanners going, waiting for a shooting or a, a, a crime and then we'd chase it down and jump in the middle of the crime scene. Mm. Mm. Sounds like a television show, doesn't it? Yeah, it was actually 
it was good fun. It was either sitting there all night playing the, the PSP in the car or in doing nothing or yeah. it was, yeah, looking over dead bodies and, mm. you know, being told to move out of the way because you might get shot as a guy running around with a gun. Mm. It's a dangerous profession. Mm. Can be. Can be. So then what, how did the idea to write about, um, about or to write the story of Australian Heist come up? How did you move to that? Yeah, look, I wanted to get away from the prisons. I thought, yes. you know, four books was enough and yeah. we'd probably exhausted it and revealed as much as I could. So it was onto a new project and quite interested in Australian history. Yes. Um, and I wanted to bring to life a story that hadn't been told and try and find something out there that, that was worthy and deserved being told and also yeah. something that, that suited me, which was high pace with a lot of action and, you know, yeah. something that would make a a nice modern read and mm. you know, I found that in Australian Heist, the story of how these eight bush rangers stole 77 kilos of gold. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I didn't even, I didn't know about it. I hadn't heard about it before this. Um, and did you find this style of writing different to what you'd written before? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, So talk to me about the challenges of writing that because obviously you couldn't interview anyone. No, no. no. And I mean, I, I took the same approach in that I wanted, I could have, yeah, made. I think it would have been a mistake is to write it like it was written in mm -hmm. 1862 and I think mm -hmm. that's what a lot of people do with these style of books is everything is purely correct and, you know, I didn't want, you know, 25-year-old kids reading it thinking they were reading Shakespeare. Like mm -hmm. I wanted to give it a, Make it a bit accessible. of a modern edge and, yeah. you know, tell it like you were there now watching it today with something you could relate to. So the writing is very cinematic and, and action-packed. And um, the story also allowed me to do it. But, yeah, the, the, the challenges were you did have to get a lot of the stuff period correct. So if you go to describe the floor, I made the mistake at times of imagining it was a cement floor and writing that and then you find out later they didn't have cement back then. Yeah, why? Wow. <laughs> and yeah. even, even um, you know, references to, you know, obviously the, the miles and kilometres and... Yeah. Um, you know, you had to get all the guns correct. So I had to work out the exact model of gun. That they and were, were you looking at archives all the time? Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. It, it pretty much you wouldn't go through a paragraph without having to, to research a fact. And that's, you know, just when you're using your descriptive now, so you'd go to describe something, but you needed to know exactly, you know, how they loaded this yeah. gun, how they shot. You know, yeah. what their effects were, um, the clothes. Uh, and was there a lot of information that you found on yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the access we have to information today is incredible and it's, you know, it certainly makes my job easy. But, for example, the State Library have a facility that's open to everyone called Trove. Yes. And that on there you can go and find newspaper articles from, you know, 1788 if, if, if you want to. And yeah. they're all there. They've all been archived. Because it was a big story at the time. Yeah, well, anything that's been published you can grab off that website. Right. And, you know, it takes a while to learn the search yeah. engine but once you've got that. But it's a def very different skill to what you'd been writing. Um, yes and no. I mean, writing's writing, journalism's journalism. Whether yes, real reporting. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's nothing different to what we do every yeah. day except that you're going back a little bit further than, than what you're used to. Yeah. Um, and what are you working on now? I'm working on Jonathan Thurston's autobiography. So mm -hmm. JT is probably one of our greatest ever athletes and... It's quite strange considering I said I'd never, ever write a sports book again. <laughs> so you're ghosting it again. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. And your mates. Yeah. So I made this one exception and that was, um, you know, if I did do a sport book again, it would be a rugby league book. And, and did it, he ask you to do that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, it was something I couldn't refuse and, yeah, I have got this rugby league background so I need to write a 
one rugby league book in my life, and if I'm going to do one, it's going to be about the greatest player we've possibly ever seen. So, And that's out this year? Yeah, yep, that will be out later this year as well. You're a busy guy. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> thanks, James Phelps. Thank you so much for coming in yeah, to speak with us Yeah, thanks very today. much. Cheers. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.